Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, Paul, are we ready? Oh, sorry. Well, as you know, this is a special Shabbat today. It's the Shabbat between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, known as Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of Repentance. And so I want to speak today on one of the greatest and best-known texts in the Bible about repentance, uh, Psalm 51. Uh, but before I do, I want to also speak to, uh, about uh, martyrdom and mission. And then I'm going to tie these two together, the, 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 the uh, themes of martyrdom and mission and Psalm 51, and how they, all, how they intersect uh, together. Well... The year is 1555. This is the year 1555. It's been almost 40 years since Luther started what's known as the Protestant Reformation by nailing his 95 thesis to the church door at Wittenberg, and almost 20 years since Calvin had written his Institutes. The church in England was now under fire, quite literally, uh, from a royal foe named Queen Mary, who was trying to impose Catholicism back upon England and burning at the stake anyone who got in her way. The year is 1555. Over the next few years, 288 people will be burned at the stake for preaching the gospel. Men and women, church leaders and common laborers, even children. The first to break the ice, so to speak, and cross the river in Mary's reign was a man named John Rogers. Rogers, he was educated at Cambridge, became a Catholic priest, but he quickly became disillusioned with the teachings of the Catholic Church. By God's providence, he traveled to Holland, and he met William Tyndale. Tyndale taught Rogers the Bible and the gospel, and Rogers would never be the same. When Tyndale was arrested, he left his Old Testament Hebrew manuscripts with Rogers, who compiled them into the first ever English Bible under the codename Thomas Matthews. Uh, the Matthews Bible became the first officially authorized Bible in the English language. Rogers would go on to pastor in Germany, but his heart was for the people of England. So he returned to London in 1548, uh, and there with his wife and then, then eight children, uh, he preached and he pastored safely under the reign of King Edward VI. But Edward died, and his half-sister, Mary, proclaimed herself queen. Rogers knew that Mary was a staunch Roman Catholic and hostile to Protestantism and to the gospel. She arrived in London on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553. Rogers was scheduled to preach that Sunday. This was his moment. He did not shrink back. He boldly proclaimed the gospel of salvation. I'll put this on the overhead, please. Uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Yeshua alone, for God's glory alone. And he warned the assembled congregation against what he called pestilent popery and all idolatry. One commentator wrote this about his sermon, and again, I'm on the overhead, uh, that, that day. This was never a, uh, there was never a sermon in the whole history of the Reformation 
uh, where the responsibilities thrown upon one single man uh, were greater and the results more important. Roger's conduct that day was more than noble. It was magnificent. Roger's sermon that day would be his last. One week later, he was placed under house arrest with his pregnant wife and ten children. Six months later, he was put in prison where he lived in cruel conditions for the next year. And on January 15th, 1555, he was summarily examined and condemned for two offenses. Number one, for standing against the Church of Rome. And number two, for saying that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine do not turn literally into the body and blood of Messiah. Rogers had not been allowed to see or to communicate with his wife or his family the entire time he'd been in prison. He had never even met his youngest child. So he pleaded for the opportunity to see them before he died. His request was refused. The next morning, he was roused from his cell and led to the streets of the parish he once pastored. Uh, he walked in the shadow of the church where he had preached. Thousands of spectators lined the way. And in that sea of faces, he saw his family. He saw his wife holding a baby. The first and last time he would ever behold his youngest child. And he saw ten other children standing beside her, all looking at their daddy. One writer wrote this on the, on the overhead. Uh, their anxious faces were all fixed on him. Uh, their voices of pain reached his ears. It's difficult to imagine anything more tender or affectionate uh, than their parting scene, this last adieu of a beloved wife and so numerous an offspring, all in tears. He withstood the shock with feelings of a father and a husband, but also with unshaken confidence of a follower of Yeshua marching to his death. John Fox, in his book of Martyrs, tells that he walked calmly to the stake, and as he did, he recited over and over again Psalm 51, the 51st Psalm. Uh, And when he arrived, the sheriff gave him one last opportunity to recant uh, and, and to revoke his confession of faith, and admit his need for the Pope and the Virgin Mary and Mass and Communion and the sacraments for his salvation. To which Rogers responded, That which I have preached, I will now seal with my blood. Within moments, the fire was at Rogers' feet. It was set ablaze. His body slowly began to burn. And as he lifted his arms high in the air, the enthusiasm of the crowds, the, the cheering him on, knew no bounds. Uh, They rent the air with thunderous applause. J.C. Rao writes this, who put on the overhead. For up to that day, uh, men couldn't tell uh, how the English reformers would behave in the face of death. And they could hardly believe that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for the sake of the gospel. Within days, others would follow uh, his fate, the same fate. Uh, Nicholas Ridley who was a fellow prisoner of John Rogers, said this, again in the overhead. He said, I thank our Lord God and Heavenly Father, by Messiah Yeshua, that since I heard of our dear brother Rogers' parting and stout confession of faith in the Messiah and his truth, even to the death, I say, since that time, I've no longer felt any lumpish heaviness in my heart. John Leaf was a 19-year-old apprentice of John Rogers when he was arrested. 
He was asked if he believed what Rogers taught on the overhead. This is what he said. He answered, not only do I believe every doctrine Rogers had taught, because it's all found in God's word, but I'm also ready to meet the same death that Rogers faced. And so he did. According to witnesses, he was burned alive with a cheerfulness and an unshaken resolution that was remarkable for one so young and that would have pleased his teacher in the faith. John Rogers, Nicholas Ridley, John Leaf, 285 others would soon follow in the fire of their footsteps all across England under the reign of bloody Queen Mary. And thousands of other saints all did the same all across Europe during the time of the Reformation. It's time. See this day 500 years ago when our brothers in the faith were emboldened to die for the gospel. And see the time fast approaching again when standing for the gospel will not be a mere academic, theological exercise, but a real life and death endeavor. See the day when wives and children saw in their husbands and their dads a willingness to sacrifice and to suffer for the sake of Messiah Yeshua. See, in this day, uh, but back then, men who gladly embraced martyrdom for the sake of the truth of salvation, by trusting in the life and the death and the resurrection of Yeshua, and not by their good works or sacraments or outward rituals or human effort. That's Chaim. See their martyrdom and let us be reminded by them that it's altogether right for us as well, if ever called upon, to give our lives to preserve and protect and proclaim and to preach the gospel. Be reminded by these saints that it's required for us uh, to commit our lives to proclaim the gospel of the Messiah Yeshua to the world. As the scriptures say to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And so my holy brothers and sisters of Eschaim, I have two questions for you today on this Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of Repentance. Number one, why did they die? What was the reason for these martyrs' deaths? And number two, how then shall we live? Is there anything we need to hear across these halls of history from these heroes of the faith? What might these martyrs say to us today? Especially in a day when the body of Messiah is flooded with with seeker-friendly, easy believism, cheap grace, health and wealth, me-centered, costless, comfy, cultural Christianity. The body of Messiah today has become soft and complacent, at ease and compromised, with a priority on our own personal peace, inclusiveness of alternate lifestyles, material comfort, universalism, and the jettison of any call to repentance or self-denial or taking up one's cross or sacrifice or servanthood or giving everything to follow Messiah, Yeshua. So let's be honest. A theology of martyrdom has long ago been thrown out, thrown out the window by by our contemporary thought Uh, even among self-proclaimed Yeshua followers here in the West. 
A theology of dangerous mission that could lead to death is no longer preached today from the pulpits. Not in America. A false gospel of peace and safety and prosperity has suddenly invaded the minds of our congregations far more than we dared to admit. Surely we must confess that our views of safety and security and prosperity and success are often far more American than they are biblical. We're far more concerned with preservation of our lives in this country than they are with the exaltation of Yeshua among the nations. And so we have much to learn from the lives of these Reformation martyrs. So the first question, why did they die? As many of you recall, in Fox's Book of Martyrs, it recounts how John Rogers, as he walked to his death, kept repeating Psalm 51. Uh, a psalm all about repentance, which King David wrote after the, Nathan, uh, after the, the prophet uh, Nathan uh, confronted him about his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. And so the psalm about repentance is, of course, very fitting for today, it being Shabbat Shuvah, the Sabbath of repentance. As John Rogers, he walked to his death, marching past his wife and children, past his congregation. These were the words that were on his lips. Psalm 51. And also note Roland Taylor, the third martyr under Mary's bloody reign. He was a pastor who had been betrayed by two of his own parishioners. He was thrown into prison. The night before his death, he was allowed a last visit by his family, and he gave his son a book. And in the back of the book, he wrote this. We'll put this on the overhead. This is what he inscribed in the book. To my wife and children, the Lord gave you unto me, and the Lord has now taken me from you, and you from me. Nonetheless, blessed be the name of the Lord. God cares for the sparrows and the hairs on our head, and I've ever found him more faithful and favorable than any husband or father. Trust in him. By the means of our dear Savior, Yeshua the Messiah, and his merits alone. Believe, love, fear, obey him. Count me not dead, for I shall surely live and not die. I go before, and you shall follow after, as, uh, as we come to our true home. The next morning, he was led to the place where he would burn. And Fox's Book of Martyrs recalls that he went, as he, he went to the stake, he kissed it, he set himself inside the, the pitch barrel, stood upright, his hands folded together, his eyes towards heaven, and he began to quote scripture in English in the language of the people, which was illegal. And as he did, he was struck on the face and ordered to only speak scripture in Latin. But Taylor refused to stop quoting the Bible in English. And guess what he was quoting? Psalm 51. In fact, one historian says that Psalm 51 was traditionally recited by the English reformers at their execution. So why? Why Psalm 51? It's not a psalm about martyrdom, uh, but it's an amazing psalm. Now, Charles Spurgeon wrote this about Psalm 51. He says, such a psalm may be wept over. Absorbed into the soul, exhaled again in devotion, but commented on? Who is he, having attempted it, 
Who can do other than blush at his defeat? So what is it here in the text that made this psalm so precious to the Reformation martyrs in their final moments? I want us to read this psalm together. And as we do, in your mind's eye, I want you to hear this psalm as spoken by the men who are walking past their wives and their children to their death. Hear these divine words shouted by the mouths of the martyrs as their bodies are being set ablaze. As they cry out these words from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and you are justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you, des- yet you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness at the bones you've crushed Rejoice, hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll teach transgressors your ways, And sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God. You who are my God and Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord. And my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice or else I'd bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion and build up the walls of Yerushalayim. Then you delight in the sacrifices of the righteous. In burnt offerings, offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. So, what truths does this psalm contain that impelled the martyrs to their death oh, and comforted the martyrs in their death. I want us to look at three truths today proclaimed in this text. Three truths that these martyrs believed. Uh, three truths that, that drove them uh, as they died. And they'll fill up me overhead. They believed, number one, uh, their, their depravity was deserving of damnation. That's truth number one. They believed their depravity was deserving of damnation. See how the psalm describes sin in so many different ways over and over again. And we'll put this on the overhead as well. Verse 1, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my, my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse 3, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against you only have I sinned. That there was evil in your sight. Verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin my mother conceived me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Look at all the vocabulary here. Sin, iniquity, transgression, evil. 
different words that, that combine together to show the depths of David's and our uh, depravity. As I mentioned, this psalm was written in response to his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. But as David knows, sin is not just an isolated incident for him. It utterly inundated him. Because it was part of his nature, even from birth. He had within him an innate proclivity, a propensity to sin. And we too, we have the same sin nature. The same evil heart. The same inclination to sin. Look at verse 5. Behold, thou hast brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now, this is not a reference to some kind of immoral relationship that his mother had, or some specific incidents surrounding his birth. No, rather, it's a reference to the reality that affects every single one of us. From our birth forward, we're born with a fallen sin nature. We naturally sin. You don't have to teach a child to lie, right? You have to teach a child to tell the truth. (laughs) Because we have a natural bent towards sin. We're, in a sense, dominated by depravity. We're destined to defy God. So look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what's evil in your sight. This is a reminder that while our sin does affect people around us, the first consequence of sin is the reality that you and I have defied an infinitely holy God, the God of the universe. And therefore, we deserve death. In the words of David from another psalm, he says, My bones are crushed, my joy is gone. I'm guilty of shedding innocent blood. This reminds us of the infinite seriousness of sin before a holy God. In defying the Lord, we're destroying ourselves. It's the story of the whole scriptures. Beginning in Genesis 3 forward, you know, from the first sin, death and condemnation come to all men. From one original sin have come the effects of sin across the history of the world. Uh, so, we, so today, we, we were reminded very much this week of, of natural evil, right? Of hurricanes and tornadoes and, and, and t- uh, tsunamis. Uh, and that there's uh, moral evil, right? World wars, uh, ethnic cleansing, genocide, rape, human trafficking, murder, kidnapping. And it all goes back to one sin. And we in this room have committed millions upon millions of them. So the psalmist wants us to see the severity of our sin. In a world uh, that's prone to, today to tr- treat sin lightly... Uh, as if it's no big deal. Oh, just a glance here, a thought there, uh, a word here, an action there. Lying, lusting, anger, gossip, selfishness, unbelief. God says, any and all sin defies me, defiles you, and destroys others. It's serious. From the depth of depravity in all of our hearts. Psalmist says, see it. See the depth of your own depravity in your heart and in my heart. Uh, These martyrs, they saw their own sin. And so they ran to Psalm 51 at their death. Isn't it amazing to hear godly men like these heroes of the faith in the most climatic moment as they stand for truth and die for their faith recite this psalm. Instead of 
commanding everyone of the nobility of their actions. They're instead drawing attention to their own transgressions. Even as they're dying for the Messiah, they confess that nonetheless, they are sinners to the core. Yes, they are heroes of the faith, whose shoes we are not worthy to untie. But in standing before a holy sovereign, uh, they freely acknowledge that they are sinners like everyone else. They knew they were guilty before God. And that without the blood of Yeshua, death was their due. They knew that the earthly fire that they were about to endure was nowhere near the eternal fire that they deserved without the atonement of Messiah. Your perspective of earthly embers changes when you've been saved from the eternal inferno. Indeed, shortly before his death, John Rogers wrote this. We'll put this on the overhead. He wrote, we in and of ourselves are polluted with many filthy sins, which with the measureless, unspeakable mercy of the love of God in Yeshua did not put away by not imputing them to us would have brought us to everlasting uh, damnation and death perpetual. John Rogers and the other Reformation martyrs, they recited Psalm 51 because they knew their depravity was deserving of damnation. A reality that set the stage for the second truth that's communicated here in Psalm 51. Number two, uh, they believed that their salvation was found solely in God's mercy, totally separate from any merit that they may have. Uh, just as this psalm uses a, a myriad of words to describe uh, our sin, it also uses a mosaic of terms to describe God's grace. So look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Look at the words here, mercy, abundant mercy, great compassion, steadfast love. Think about what David is asking God to do. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's asking God to to unsin him, if you will, to, to remove all iniquity from him. Talk about a bold request to ask God, the holy God whom you have defied, to act as if you had not defied him. And David knows there was no basis in himself to ask for this. He's committed two sins for which the law of Moses provided no forgiveness. uh, Adultery and murder. The penalty for both was death. David has nothing in and of himself for which he can appeal to God. So what does he do? He cries out for God to do what only God can do. Look at this from the overhead. He cries out for the Lord, verse 2, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out my iniquity. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore me, uphold me. Verse 14, deliver me. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips. He's asking God to do all these things because he knows that he cannot make them happen himself. He admits, there's nothing I can do to make it right. Lord, only you can forgive me. Only you can change me. This was the cry of the reformers in their day. 
that salvation is found solely in God's mercy in Yeshua, separate from any merit of our own. And by the way, this mercy is costly. King David knows that it's God's grace uh, and, 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 his, and God's mercy comes at a cost. Uh, David knows his cleansing is costly. It involves sacrifice. So look at verse uh, 7, Psalm 51, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. What's that talking about? Hyssop was a small plant that was used as a kind of paintbrush that the priest would use, this hyssop, uh, to brush or sprinkle the blood of the sacrifices uh, over the offerings. In fact, in the book of Exodus, Exodus 12, we read that the Israelites were, were instructed to use hyssop to apply the blood of the Passover lamb to the doorpost and the lintel of their house. So when David says, purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean, he's referring to the process of sacrifice and to the sprinkling of blood. He knows that for sin to be removed, there must be the shedding of blood. And so we read this in Hebrews 9.19. For in the Torah had been declared by Moses to the people, he took the blood of the calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. Indeed, under the Torah, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But these Torah pictures are now fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Yeshua the Messiah. Because he is our great high priest. Hebrews 9.26 Messiah has now appeared once for all to put away sin, but not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10.19 Therefore, brethren, since we now have confidence... To enter the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place for the blood of Yeshua, by new and living way that he opened for us through the veil, that is, through his flesh. And since we have this great Kohen Haggadol, this great high priest, over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, with full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled, here's the word again, sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now note that to appropriate Yeshua's cleansing work, we need to repent and to put our trust in him. That is the gospel. Repentance is key. And that is tragically missing from most presentations of the gospel today. But in this Sabbath of repentance, Shabbat Teshuvah, it's worth emphasizing. How can our sins be wiped away? By repenting and trusting in Yeshua as our Lord. Repentance is what Psalm 51 is all about. It includes being broken and being honest before God. Look at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you'll not despise. David here, he's acknowledging that the sacrifices as outward rituals must also reflect an inward reality. David knows he can't just go ahead and offer outward sacrifices and that somehow this would magically take care of everything. No. He realizes here, right in Psalm 51, that something must happen on the inside, uh, in his heart. This is huge. At time, if we are not careful, religion can become one of the biggest cover-ups for sin in your life and in mine. You and I can live in secret sin, sin that no one knows about. How can we, and then, then, of course, we can come to shul, 
We can convince everyone else and convince ourselves that we're okay. Participating in outward rituals while covering up the inward reality of sin in our lives. My holy brothers and sisters, do not do this. God, help us not to do this. God, help us not to come here and sing songs and listen to a drash while, while bypassing the brokenness over the sin that remains in us. The path to God's grace must be paved with honesty and brokenness and repentance before the Lord. And through Yeshua, if we do this, God promises to restore us, to give us a new heart and a new spirit. And that's exactly what David prays for. Look at verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Through the spirit of Messiah residing within you, God recreates your heart. Indeed, the word you, by the way, the word used here for create uh, in Psalm 51 is the exact same word used in Genesis 1-1 to describe God creating the world. Just had God had the power to create the universe, he has the power to create a new heart in you and in me. And this is exactly what he does for you in Messiah Yeshua. 2 Corinthians 2.17, 5.17. If anyone is in Messiah, he's, he is new. He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things are new. Hallelujah. He gives us newness. By his sheer mercy, based uh, on the death and resurrection of Yeshua, God saves sinners like you and me as we repent and as we trust in Yeshua and commit our life to follow him. We are made new creations in Messiah. Now, when Elizabeth and I, we were first married some 35 years ago now, uh, she at the time was barely making ends meet. Uh, she was working as a, a night baker at a donut shop. <laughs> I had just graduated from law school. Uh, I was starting my first job at a law firm. On the day we were married, we both received a lot of wonderful things, spiritually and materially. Most of all, I received a beautiful, godly wife. But one of the things that Elizabeth received on that day, that she didn't have before, was cash flow. <laughs> Why? Because my income became her income. <laughs> At one moment, she stood there with an empty checking account, <laughs> bouncing checks. <laughs> and then she said two words, I do. And all of a sudden, her checking account was full. <laughs> She didn't have to do anything to earn it or to work for it. Simply because her life was united with mine, everything that was mine now belonged to her. And I haven't seen my checkbook since. (laughs) But in a much greater way, when we commit our lives to Yeshua and belong to him and trust in him and surrender to him, at that very moment, everything that belongs to him becomes yours. And not because of any work you have ever done or ever will do, but solely because of the work that Yeshua has done for you and for me. Praise God. Salvation is found solely in God's mercy, separate from our merit. Because Yeshua lived a life that we should have lived and could not. And he died the death that we deserve to die. And he conquered the enemy that we could not conquer. And he's risen from the dead. 
So that when we turn from our sin, as we're called to do today on the Shabbat Teshuvah, and we turn from ourself, and we turn to him as our Lord, then by his love and by his mercy, we are cleansed from our wickedness and become new creations in Messiah Yeshua. We are forgiven. We are reconciled back to God. We are filled, we are filled with his spirit to know and to enjoy him forever. This is the greatest news in all the world. Which leads to the third and final truth of Psalm 51. Number three, uh, the reformers believed that love like this was worth losing their lives to proclaim. The reformers believed that love like this was worth losing their life to proclaim. Look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I'll proclaim your gospel. I'll teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me, Lord, from blood guilt. You, my God and my Savior. And then I will proclaim your goodness. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. Do you see David proclaiming the goodness of God here? Do you see, we'll put this on the overhead, uh, washing by God leads to worship of God and witness for God. David says, I'm going to teach this to transgressors and sinners. And then we head again. Uh, do you see how, how possession of this good news compels proclamation of this good news? And so, do you see David proclaiming God's goodness here? See how, how washing uh, by God leads to worship of God and then leads to witness for God. David says, I'm going to teach this to transgressors and the sinners. So do you see how, how possession of God, the good news, compels proclamation of the good news? And note also, most importantly, these martyrs did not die just because they believed the gospel. They died because they broadcast the gospel. They didn't die because they studied the gospel. They died because they spoke it. Persecution only rises when proclamation resounds. And so if you stay silent about your faith, you will stay safe from persecution. Yes, you will. It's when you speak about your faith that you step into persecution. And that's what these reformers were doing. They were sharing it in their homes. They were teaching it in their congregations. They were proclaiming it publicly in their towns. And it cost them everything. You know, John Rogers had a choice that Sunday uh, after Queen, Queen Mary came to London. He could preach a good sermon from a random text and keep his life, keep his pastorate, continue as a husband and a father. Or he could preach a Yeshua-centered sermon full of gospel truth, and he could lose his life. John Rogers chose the latter because he could not keep the good news of Yeshua to himself. He did not just love the gospel. He loved the people who needed the gospel. And he was willing to give his life so that they might know it. And even as he was being burned at the stake, 
He exhorted everyone to embrace the gospel of the grace of Yeshua by trusting solely in him. And then Fox concludes this in his book of martyrs. We put this on the overhead. He says, by his death, John Rogers demonstrated the reality of the ancient observation that the blood of the saints is the seed of the church. For instead of being intimidated by the severity of his suffering, multitudes were encouraged by his magnanimous example. And many who had no religion led to inquire into the cause by which pious, learned, benevolent men were so contented to lay down their lives. And thus, many of these uh, people who were witnessing it were changed from atheists or Catholics by the grace of God to the possession and profession of the gospel. When you know the depth of God's love for sinners, you are willing to lose your life for their salvation. And so number one, and we'll put this in the overhead, number one, they believed their depravity was deserving of damnation. These are the themes from Psalm 51. Number two, that salvation was found solely in Messiah's mercy and not in their merit. And number three, that love like this was worth losing their lives to proclaim. And so in light of all this, my holy brothers and sisters today of Eskayim, how then shall we live? Yes, in light of the lives of these reformers, uh, but even more importantly, based on the exposition of this text of Psalm 51, how shall we live? So I'm going to leave you with three exhortations today. And I'll put this on the overhead. Number one, I want us to prioritize the truth of the scriptures among God's people. We cannot compromise or water down the gospel. We cannot add rituals or sacraments or works or religion and become legalists. And we can't say it doesn't matter how you live or ignore repentance and become promoters of license and easy believism and the lowest common denominator. We've got to avoid both extremes. The, the, the liberal extreme of cheap grace and the conservative extreme of Phariseeism. Because the truth of God's word matters. We cannot dilute God's word or pass over all those passages on sin and repentance and hell in order to make our message more palatable and more attractive to the masses. And we cannot lower the bar of Yeshua's calling by ignoring the truth to deny oneself and to take up one's cross, dying to self, uh, and, and to wholeheartedly follow him. We must not pervert the gospel into anything less than Yeshua's standards just in order to, to inflate the, our number of so-called conversions or, or to make our ministry look good. Man-centered, nominal, easy believism is not what the lost need. It's not what our unsaved Jewish brethren need. So let's not compromise or water down God's word. Number two, let us mobilize for sacrificial mission among the lost to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The need is great throughout the world. The fields are white for harvest, but the workers are few. And so we need to pray and ask the Lord if he would send us into his mission field. And if not, at the very least, for us to be more intentional about sharing our faith right here and now, where we are, where we live. But I also believe today that the Lord would call some of us abroad to short-term or long-term missions. 
Even perhaps to places we don't we think need missionaries. Uh, like Rogers and the Reformers home country of England. Did you know today in England, if you're in your 20s, there's a 97% chance that not only are you yourself not a Yeshua follower, but that you don't even know any Yeshua followers. Today in Germany, the home of Martin Luther, only 2% of the population believe the gospel. It's a practically unreached country. There are twice as many Muslims there uh, as there are Yeshua followers in Germany today. What about our brother Eric, who's ministering in Turkey? 80 million people in Turkey. You know how many believers? About 5,000. 5,000 out of 80 million. That's less than one one-hundredth of one percent. Talk about the unreached. There aren't many believers in Turkey. And if they publicly evangelize, they'll be imprisoned or even killed. Most people in Turkey do not know a Yeshua follower. They don't, do not have access to the gospel. There are no churches or synagogues or congregations in towns for a Turk to see the gospel proclaimed or to hear it. They're unreached by the gospel. That's what it means to be unreached. They don't have access to the gospel. So it's not true that your, your unbelieving office mate or co-worker or, or your classmate or your neighbor is unreached. That's actually not true. Why? Because they have you. <laughs> you can share the gospel with them. They have access to it anytime through you. So they may be lost, but they're not unreached. But there are literally billions in the world today who are unreached, who have no ready access to the gospel who've never even heard the name of Yeshua. That's why Paul says in Romans 10, verse 14, how then can they call on the one whom they've not believed in? And how can they believe in one in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear that one preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. These unreached people are lost and will remain lost unless someone is sent to bring them the good news of Yeshua. That's why Yeshua charged us all with this great commission for us to go and to make disciples of all the nations. And so we read this in Revelation 5, verse 9, speaking of Yeshua. It says, you, Yeshua, are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, purchase for God members of what? Of every tribe and tongue and people group, ethnic group, ethnos in the Greek, uh, a nation. You made them kingdom of priests to serve our God and to reign upon the earth. Yeshua has purchased, he has ransomed men and women from every people, from every ethnic group on the face of the earth. And he ordains you and I as the means by which they will be reached for the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. So they can't see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Messiah, who's the image of God. So what do they need? Look at verse 6. This is what they need. They need God to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Messiah. But how is God going to do that? How is God going to shine the light of Messiah, verse 6, to blind, to blind eyes, verse 4, the answer is in the middle, verse 5, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, by, we, because, by us preaching Messiah. Look at verse 5. For what we preach 
is not ourselves, but Yeshua the Messiah as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Yeshua's sake. Do you see God's plan? It's to us, to you, it's to you, us as his followers, you and me, to share our faith, the Jew first, and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. My holy brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, there's an eternal cancer that's killing humanity. And we have the cure. The gospel of God's grace through repentance and faith in Yeshua and following him as Lord. It's turning from our sin and turning from ourself and turning to the Yeshua. And the nations need to hear this. And your unsaved friends and family and classmates and neighbors and co-workers need to hear it. Which leads to my third and final exhortation. So number one, prioritize the truth of, of, of the scripture among God's people. Number two, uh, mobilize uh, for sacrificial mission among the lost. And number three, let's live and lead and long for the day when reformation turns to consummation. You know, the reformation isn't over. 500 years ago, we rediscovered salvation by faith, not by works. And today, we need to rediscover that Yeshua is a Jew and the Jewish roots of our faith and combating replacement theology and supersessionism that falsely teaches that the church is now the new Israel and that God's done with, with national ethnic Israel. No, a thousand times no. We live in a day when supernaturally Messianic Judaism has been reborn from the ashes after having been dead for 1,800 years. When the state of Israel has been reborn and the two go hand in glove together. In addition, with respect not just to Israel, but to all the nations, just like in the first century among the Messianic believers and in the 16th century among the Reformers, today we have brothers and sisters all over the world who are being imprisoned and tortured and persecuted and killed for their faith. Believers in prison camps in North Korea, churches burnt to the ground in Pakistan, uh, people, brothers being crucified in Nigeria and Sudan, throats being slit in Somalia and Syria and Iraq. All over the world, believers are dying for the gospel. And so we long for the day of Messiah's return. Revelation 6, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony. And they cried out with a loud voice, How long, Lord? How long, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And each was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little while longer. Until the number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been, and the number was full. According to the book of Revelation, the number of martyrs is not yet complete. It continues on, even to our day. But the Lord promises that one day he will return and establish his kingdom from Jerusalem. And the days of pain and suffering and trial and tribulation will be finished. That is a day worth living for and leading for and longing for. We close with this. The French ambassador who was there witnessing the uh, martyrs being burned at the stake 
in London in 1558, he wrote back to the French royal court, uh, and we have his letter to this day. This is how he described the scene. He says this, It was as if this man was walking to his wedding. When Roland Taylor was led to the stake, the sheriff asked him how he felt. He replied, God be praised, Master Sheriff, never better. For now, I'm almost home. I'd lack just a few more paces, and I'll be at my father's house. John Bradford was buried with 19-year-old John Leaf. He kissed the stake. He turned to his 19-year-old brother and said, Be of good comfort, brother, for we'll have a merry supper with the Lord tonight. Helen Stark, a mother with a newborn child, she was sentenced to be put into a sack and drowned. Her husband was also sentenced to die uh, before her. And so she followed him to the execution stake. She kissed him, and she said to him, Husband, rejoice, for we've lived together many joyful days. And this, but this day in which we must die is to be the most joyful to us both, for we will have joy forever. Therefore, I bid you not good night, for we'll surely meet with joy in the kingdom of heaven. All these men and women knew this world was not their home. They were living, leading, and longing for another world. They were looking forward to a divine wedding feast and a marriage supper. My brothers and sisters of Etzchayim, one day we will join them. And that is a day worth living and leading and longing for. We all deserve damnation, but we've been delivered from a never-ending death based on nothing that we've done. We're redeemed not by our merit, but by his mercy. That's how much Yeshua loves you. And love like this is worth losing our lives to proclaim. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. Now the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today on this Shabbat Teshuvah, the Sabbath of repentance, for your love and your mercy and your grace. We are vile sinners, one and all, deserving of damnation. But you reach down in your love to make a way for us through the blood of Messiah Yeshua, your son. So help us, Lord, on this Shabbat Teshuvah, the Sabbath of repentance, to do what the martyrs of the Reformation did on the way to their death. And that's to remember your grace and your mercy, to put off our old man, to turn from our wicked ways, to put on the new man, to put on who we really are in Messiah Yeshua, and to repent before you, to confess before you, be contrite, and to be converted. So, Lord, we cry out today in Yeshua's name, O Lord, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For, Lord, I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Ultimately, Lord, it's against you. You only I have sinned. And know what's evil in your sight. So cleanse me with hyssop, that I'll be clean. Wash me, 
and I'll be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Lord, this day, create in me a clean heart, a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You don't delight in sacrifice, Lord, or I'd give it. Lord, my sacrifice is a broken spirit because a broken and contrite heart, God, is what you will never despise. And so, Lord, we thank you today for the cleansing power of the blood of Yeshua, in whose name we pray. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Created me a clean heart.